All of us believe something about the end of the world. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. Eschatology means the study of the end times. I'm really getting nervous here about what are we going to do? We, we, I'm useless. I know how to use a spreadsheet. We dismiss it as someone else's business. He's talking about the tribulation period. All hell is going to break loose on earth. In other words, no matter how bad things are right now, you ain't seen nothing yet. And this podcast is all about eschatology and what people really believe about the end of the world. And I'll be joined by my great friend, Pete Milner, who is a master of theology, a great student of history, and just a great thinker and all-round good egg. So join me in this exciting adventure. So hi, everyone. Welcome to another sauntering podcast with me, Paul White, and Pete Milner. Hi, everyone. And we're following on in our topic of eschatology the study of the end and we're on episode four which is wow we're here already and today we're going to be talking about the idea of the third Rome and how that kind of informs where we are at with the Ukraine crisis and and so on with Mr Putin's kind of saber rattling and Mm. stuff that's going on so um just a little bit of background. Everybody knows that there's a war in Ukraine, that on the 27th of February 2022, Mr. Putin sent an invasion force into Ukraine or with the purpose of doing a special mission or something special. That's operation. what he calls it. <laughs> but it turned out to be a hundred mile long um, convoy of trucks and tanks, tanks and, and armament. And uh, the... I think everyone was amazed. I was. How serious it was and how incredible the Ukrainian response was and how effective they were Mm. in tackling this monstrosity that had come in through their eastern border. Yeah, it was definitely true that Mr. Putin had had an idea and his idea assumed that what he was trying to do and why was shared by most of Ukraine so that when his army arrived, he figured they'd be throwing the doors open for him and letting him in. But that isn't what he found. And so his eschatology has taken a little bit of a knock. And I guess it remains to be seen as to what happens for Ukraine as part of that. But I guess it's his eschatology that we want to look at, isn't it? This thing of the third Rome. So what has Rome got to do with Moscow, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's a really, really good question. And uh, so we've been uh, studying history, haven't sure. we? Sure. And <laughs> listen to Timothy Snyder. Who we love. Long lectures on the history of Ukraine mm. and reading up what we can. The interesting, um, Mr. Putin had gone into the Crimea, annexed the Crimea yes. in 2014? Yeah. 2015? 2014. 2014. That was... The Donbass and Luhansk in the east and Crimea in the south. Relatively easy job done, it seemed. He just walked in Mm -hmm. and took possession um, of the Crimea, which is a little island joined by a tiny strip of Of land land Mm -hmm. to Ukraine. And now a bridge to Russia. Yep. And 
claimed that this was all always Russian territory. Yeah. And also claimed that the eastern part of Ukraine, known as Donbass, was Russian also. Mm-hmm. In Donbass, things went less well, and there was a separatist movement going on, lots of fighting, That's shelling. That's right, yeah. And, and that's really not stopped since 2014 in that part of the country. So I think he was probably, it's true to say, surprised by the reaction there where he expected to be greeted with open arms. Mm-hmm. But instead, there were enough pro-Ukrainian U- Ukrainians in the predominantly Russian-speaking territory to hold out a pretty stiff resistance to yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Ultimately, people are not generally fans of people driving tanks into their houses, however <laughs> no. much invaders would like it to be the case that everyone loved them. It's, nobody likes it, and yeah. it seems that he has been surprised in this way. There was this whole mythology that these men, these little green men, as they were called by the Ukrainians, were friendly people, and Mr. Putin... and. And the Russians had put out this propaganda with these unbadged soldiers, mm. militias, who were not traceable to actually Russia yes, directly by any badges or anything insignia. But they were shown greeting children on the streets with a nice friendly smile. Mm. And these are really nice people, friendly people. Yes, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> the beatings will continue until morale improves. So, Pete, just talk to us a little about a bit about this idea of the Third Rome, because evidently Mr. Putin is not the first person to seize on it as a, a kind of meta-narrative for their kind of endeavours. Yeah, well, that's definitely true. Um, really, this is quite a Eurocentric kind of problem. So, 2,000 years ago, who held sway over all Europe and, and, you know, the mightiest power in the world was original Rome. So the Caesars, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and then the later ones. And then, of course, Constantine becomes a Christian. That's free. So, yeah, 300 or so AD, there's an emperor called Constantine, and he's noticed that in the Roman Empire, the historic centre of Rome in Italy is sort of not really the centre of the Roman Empire anymore because they've conquered large parts of Iraq and what we now call Turkey and Egypt and places like that. And he's got this idea to build or sort of build upon Byzantium and call it Constantinople after himself and make it like a second Rome. And it's going to be the most glorious capital city in the world and he's going to live there as the emperor and it's going to be like, first we had first Rome, now we've got... Second Rome, and so that's going to be the centre of the Roman Empire. That's his idea. strategic, geographically. Massively. And by far the largest city in the world, I think. Wow. I think I'm not wrong. At several points in history. So it's, mm. it's a real colossus. It dwarfed original Rome, So for this sure. is a Roman Christian. Yep. Um, would we say Christendom type of move? Yes. Well, Const- it was Constantine and then some successors of his who gradually Christianized the whole Roman Empire. So right. that was the time where Christianity became normal. And he was able to kind of, you know how you can kind of pin multiple things on, on one thing? Mm-hmm. Well, he's made Constantinople the center of trade, the center of money, the center of people, the center of geography, the center of the faith. And because all these things are so neatly tied together, the the kind of Caesars in Rome, in Constantinople, sorry, they rule 
uh, totally. You know, they've got the most powerful kind of unified state in the world. And not very long after that, first Rome, 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 falls. So in the 400s AD, um, the the Germanic and, and, you know, Eastern European people come through into the old Roman Empire and sack Rome. So then it kind of lends an extra leg to this stool to say, well, second Rome has gone past first Rome. First Rome has now fallen and now we only have second Rome, which is the center of the 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 Christendom, the Christian world. In the end, it wasn't quite as comprehensive as all that because you'll notice that the the Pope and Roman Catholicism survive, even though Rome itself is sacked. And so there's competing claims as to who holds sway over Rome. And it's been hundreds of years since there was a Roman Empire in Rome with legions of Romans. And it's all changed quite a long time within those hundreds of years. And so you get this kind of um, showdown between in the West, you've got this um, group of Europeans we kind of call the Franks. And they set up in France, which is named after them, and in Germany, and they call it the Holy Roman Empire, because they want to lay claim to this idea that we are following Rome. We're going to rule all of Europe. We're going to be the center of Christianity. We're going to be the center of trade. We're going to be the center of everything. So you've got Franks in the West, and then you've got Constantinople in the East as the second Rome, which is Greekish. So what we're talking about still at this point is one church that we look back on and say this is the Eastern or the Orthodox Church. Sort of. You've, we've you've... already got like things breaking down. Yes. We've got these different bishops, and one, the Bishop of Rome, Leo III, mm-hmm makes a pronouncement against the Eastern Church. And and says, first Rome is true Rome. The Latin Roman Catholic Church is the real one. And the Orthodox Church in the East are the wrong'uns. So he excommunicates them and they return the compliment by excommunicating him. Yeah, you can't fire me, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. So that's that's about a thousand years after Jesus, right? 1054. And you've got an East and a West then. And this becomes known as the Great Schism, is that Yes, that's correct, yeah. Schism meaning any kind of split. And it's a split politically, very much. Yeah, very much. But it's also made a doctrinal split over some point of doctrine about the the second person of the Trinity, am I right? Or the Um, third person? It's it's probably more complicated than that. Truthfully, the the Orthodox, the Eastern Greekish Church... That's in Greece, what we now call Turkey and, and um, Ukraine and other places, um, had been different from the Western Roman Church for a number of points for a number of centuries by then. That isn't the first moment it splits. Right. It's been two separate communions for a long, long time. But both have this idea that um, we're all really Christians. You know, there's just the other lot are in error. Um, yeah. the, the thing that made the Great Schism different is that neither of them any longer believed there was any kind of common ground between them except that the others should learn the right answers and convert to their way of doing it so that's the great schism of of 1054 and at that point you've got sort of two heavyweights in europe 
But you've also got a big threat, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, about um, Islam, which is newly kind of the force in the world. Yeah. And, and it's kind of demolishing the Eastern Roman Empire or the Eastern Orthodox Empire, the Byzantine Empire, um, around about this time. And that's what starts off the Crusades, you know, the fall of Jerusalem, yes. which we mentioned. And you know, the first crusade, I think, is 1099. So it's within living memory of the beginning of the Great Schism. And so the Western Roman um, Catholic places, they decide to send the crusade over to the Holy Land to try and recapture it so that they can sort of build a better Christendom without the Eastern Orthodox Church completely. And there's all sorts of interesting stuff about it, but that's probably not much to do with no, Vladimir Putin. It does show this great sweep of East and West, like these mm. currents running backwards and forwards doesn't it this huge army which was unparalleled really wasn't it to go yes. in and try and and i think they did successfully take jerusalem yeah in that first they did yeah they, they certainly did it was shocking and bloody and horrible horrendous but um and at this time kiev and the group of people who live around about eastern europe around there they call themselves the rus from which we get the word russian mm -hmm. And they are Eastern people. They are an, a reasonably powerful Eastern kingdom. And they are, you know, in, in terms of their faith and their center of gravity, they're all about Constantinople. Ukraine, you know, they, they have Greek speakers and they have Greek place names and they mm. have Greek language Bibles. And that's who they are. You know, they're Eastern people, the Kievan Rus, as, yeah. as they were. And at some point, the Tatars yep. move into Crimea to and the rest of Ukraine yeah. occupy huge chunks of yes and so Genghis Khan and the, pe the people who followed him the Mongols the Tatars these kind of nomadic Asia Asiatic or Asian yeah. people move Turkey. in from the east that's right and they settle all over Europe as well as destroy and conquer most of it so um the Rus the 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 group of people whose center used to be Kiev are sort of scattered by this. And so you've got Cossacks and Tatars and, and you know, people who are Islamic and Asiatic in their nature now sort of living within what we call Eastern, U Eastern Europe. And that gives the Rus a bit of an identity crisis. So it's like, where should we be? And um, in, in the south, you've got Kiev still and the Black Sea areas. You've got Minsk and the kind of northern, more Baltic areas. And you've got Moscow in the east. And, and Moscow is controlled by, by the, the Tatars. Muscovites, is it? Or well, they're, they're con uh, controlled by the Tatars for a much longer time. Okay. They stay a, a part of this like Asiatic kind of um, empire for a long time. But eventually they throw off what's called the Tatar yoke. Yeah. That's what they called it. And they become... The, the sort of center of the Rush or the Russians. Mm -hmm. And they um, have then got this whole um, question of what are they exactly? Because there's a big auspicious date coming up in the 1400s when Constantinople, the second Rome, mm -hmm. is destroyed and taken over by the Ottoman Turks. Right, and this is really important, isn't yes. it? So the second Rome has fallen. Yes, the first one fell in 400 and some odd AD. The second one falls in 1400 or so AD. But the perception growing in Russia, what we now know is Russia and Moscow, is that there is now virtually no other 
credible Christian nation on the face of the earth. In their in their kind in of their Christianity. Yeah. Yes, because they're Eastern Orthodox people and Kiev had been sort of um, ransacked by the Mongols and now Constantinople has fallen to the Turks. And so where is this great center of yeah. their true faith? And so Moscow becomes a place which you can say becomes that center. And the, the rulers of Moscow lay a claim to be the kings of all the Russias mm -hmm. and all the Russians and all the places that have ever been called Russian or Orthodox, including Constantinople and including lots of other places that wow. they never really ruled. So and they start calling themselves... Yeah, they start calling themselves Caesars, which is wow. Caesar or Tsar. And the ruling family called themselves Romanovs to literally mean son of the Romans for that reason. Well, Sorry, here we go. 1493. Yep. Ivan III was titled the sovereign of all Russia. So yep. they loved grandiose titles. They sure. They, and they had loads. It was like, <laughs> welcome to Ivan III, Lord of all the earth and heaven and Deputy of Jesus Christ and King of all the Russias and, you know, High Priest of the Christian Church. And they have all these titles yeah. sort of long after each other. And they had these auspicious dates and they were kind of conscious of, you know, however many years it was since the creation of the world and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And they, they all could see that there was this kind of coming together of um, the different factors. So they've got an existential crisis going on. Good, yeah. So remembering your ingredients from the first episode, we've got a big existential crisis. They've got a moral decline in they the state do. of the world. Everything They're worried about pop, Muslims. They're worried Islam. about Latins and Catholics. They're worried about barbarians in the north and in Asia. They've got um, a holy kind of um, document and book and, and sense of identity. And they've got priests and they've got prophets who, who mm -hmm. believe that this is a great thing that God is doing. Yeah. And I think you want to kind of tell us about this monk. There's oh, a, this is monk. a few yeah. years later, there's this guy of the Saint, the monk of the Saint Eliezer Monastery. He kind of has this go of like summing it all up. I don't know if you want to read it or shall yeah. I read it? So he writes this letter to the Muscovite Secretary of State, Michal Mizur, <laughs> a bit of French in there, I think, <laughs> Munechin. And he says, No, O lover of Christ and God that all Christian realms have come to an end. There we are. The There's that end of, of history. history. Yeah. <laughs> and have been gathered into a single realm under our sovereign. So this is our mandate now. Yeah. Which the... is the kingdom of the Romans, according to the prophetic books. For two realms have fallen. Yep. Which is what we've been saying. And a third exists and there will not be a fourth. Says this monk. Yes. yes. The Apostle Paul oftentimes recalls Rome in his epistles, and this is interpreted as meaning that Rome is all the world. For mm. you see. So Rome is not just... It's not just Russia, and it's not just Greece, it's not just one place, it's everyone, everywhere. This is the king of the world, or the rightful one. For you see, O elect one of God... How all the Christian realms have been crushed by the infidels, so the Turkish, the mm -hmm. um, Ottoman and Muslim empires, and only the realm of our sovereign stands by the grace of Christ. Mm. So we're the only ones left. He who reigns should remain steadfast to this with great fear and with turning towards God, not putting his hope in gold and transient riches, but in God who grants all things. So um, I think that one didn't carry that much 
gaining that much traction then. But if we fast forward, go on, Pete. What were you going to say? Um, I no, I was just going to kind of give give you that same sense that this is this is kind of one among many possible titles in the 1500s. You know, it's a small piece of the total, but it becomes clearer that it can be used to gain traction with all the people. You know, this this kind of a chosen people, we're the only ones, we yeah. rightfully rule the world, we're the greatest, we're the best. It has a big effect on people. Yeah. And it, it starts to be the kind of clarion call of, of that nation and that land and centred in Moscow. And it's a great thing for an emperor to hear spoken about themselves from somebody else, especially a monk, someone who has a direct line to God. But then if we fast forward now to just prior to the um, Russian invasion in 2022, mm -hmm. Mr. Putin made an elaborate speech. Yes. Um, which where he kind of tried to regain some of this territory yeah. and, it, you know, that kind of like the the moral religious imperative of recovering what was rightfully Russian and what was rightfully the Third Rome all along. Yes. And he lays claim to Kiev and Ukraine, large chunks of Ukraine. As well as Belarus, yeah. By saying, yeah, by saying this is actually rightfully ours all mm -hmm. along. And he attempts to rewrite history yes. somewhat and deny the incredibly fluid, dynamic history of the, of, of the, the people of that yeah. region. Yeah, for sure. And that is so typical, isn't it? it it's that thing that Tim, that we call the end of history. What Putin believes is that there will come an end where Russia will finally be all the things it should be, i.e. most powerful country, biggest country, best country, most wonderful center of all things that are true and good. That is what he thinks he's kind of working towards, or at least that's what he's using for his justification to expand Russia or attempt to um, into the areas that we're talking about, into, into Ukraine, into Belarus, into Georgia, into Central Asia. And, and for him, he appears to personally believe deeply that the Soviet Union, where it was bigger and included more of the total, was better. And yeah. he wants to recover yeah. that thing. The reason the Third Rome belief is so persuasive is because in the Soviet Union, the church was not welcome. No you know, there were some sort of orthodox sort of things allowed, but they were under very strict supervision. Yeah. And historically, the Eastern Church has always sort of stood apart from the national politics a little bit better than I think in or a little bit more distinctly than in the West. So. Um, you, you would have orthodox patriarchs and orthodox bishops who were not really anything to do with the government of Turkey or Greece or Russia. But the third Rome mentality wants to gather all that back in together as one single kind of pile of things controlled by one authority. Yeah. And before the war and before 2014 and before the invasion in 2022, there were a number of things within the Eastern Orthodox Church. So, for instance, Moscow announced that the Moscow Patriarchate and the Russian Orthodox Church, as opposed to the Greek Orthodox Church, were now irreparably split. Um, right. The church in Ukraine did the same thing. They said, we're splitting, that's yeah. right, splitting from the Russian Orthodox Church. 
and not recognising Russia's jurisdiction I over us. In fairness to them, I think when you've been annexed by... A chunk of your territory has been annexed by a foreign power who claims to have spiritual authority mm. over you as well, we can understand why there was a lot of sympathy within the Greek Orthodox Church yeah. and Eastern Orthodox generally to endorse the formation of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. And so when I was there, interestingly, in Rivna earlier... Um, this year. Uh, was it uh, just the end of last year? There was this incredibly kind of comical situation of these two churches side by side. Literally made, like next door. Yeah, maybe about 20 yards in between. Right, and one was and a Ukrainian. One was Russian, one was Ukrainian. But they're both Orthodox and they both believe both of the same things, but yeah. we're not having anything. It reminds me of a joke. There was a joke they used to tell in Bible college, which was um, a man is discovered on a desert island after months of having lived by there by himself after his plane crashed and the rescue has finally arrived. And to their surprise, he's done quite well for himself. And there's a number of little buildings erected around the little desert island. And they say, oh, could you tell us about these buildings? What are they? And, um, he says, oh, sure, you know, that one over there is, is my house. That's where I sleep. And that one over there is my church. I've made a little chapel for myself to worship in. And they said, oh, what's that other one? And he goes, oh, that's my old church. I don't worship there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's literally like that. And so you've got this, this incredible reminder of just the level of division that's come right into the community, mm. to the heart of the community by... These, the actions of basically a man who is a former KGB Agent. officer yeah. who's clay, laying claim to a divine mandate. Yes, and unlike in the Soviet Union days, he now has the backing of the Russian Orthodox Church to a great extent. Right. I mean, I don't know if you saw the uh, Orthodox Patriot priests Kirill, kind of... It? blessing the bombs that were about to be yeah. dropped on Ukraine, saying these are doing God's work. My and goodness. it's been a long time since the church in any guise sort of fell foul of things in that badly, I think. You're going back to Nazi Germany. Oh, it's nasty, Paul. It's horrible. I mean, the church should never be pleased about all this kind of armed conflict. But you can see why Mr. Putin and the people like him have kind of tried to gather military power, monetary power, like um, religious power religious, and political power, yeah. all under the same kind of central yeah. authority. And that is, that's their justification for it, is this belief that in the end there will be this great Russia, which will be perfect and the best country ever, and it'll be, everything will be right again. So if we were to sort of zoom out again... Uh-huh and estimate how many billions of dollars have been spent on from America, Britain, France, Poland and other nations, let's mm -hmm. not miss out, but other nations in the West who have been supporting directly Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We were to work out how much money sure. it would be billions. It would certainly be billions, yeah. And if we were then to sort of tot up how many... Ukrainian lives have been lost. Mm. Young men, young women. It's certainly fathers, hun hundreds of thousands. I don't know how yeah. many total. That's on the Western side. Then we think about the 
I, I think the figure I heard recently, I don't know if this is, is probably not true anymore, but is that something like 800 men a day, Russians, were dying in the meat grinder that was being talked about in Bakhmut, oh, in this, yeah. this region in the east there, where mm. they were literally untrained people from prisons, given this idea that somehow they were going to gain absolution from their sins mm. by going out to fight for Mother Russia, running into the Ukrainian guns, got no choice but to yeah. shoot them. And they're just entrenched in Ukrainian machine guns, and it's just like, well, what can I do? Yeah, I've, I've got to shoot. They keep sending soldiers, so... Mowing down how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of Russian lives, how mm. many hundreds of thousands of Russian rubles... Horrendous, yeah. The, the economy is in tatters because of this, yeah. And you think, right... What is driving this mm -hmm. is some guy's idea of utopia, presumably. Some guy's idea of eschatology. Yep. And so what we're trying to say is that eschatology is not a minority interest, Fringe interest, no. But it's... it actually has a very, very real effect on ordinary people. It's driven up the price of our domestic heating bills yep and supermarket groceries yep yeah we have inflation at what percent here now oh good. i don't know but it was like something like i think they were talking about 16 percent or, mm, or 18 10 to 15 percent as far as i know you know which is a lot and and in part that's driven by the war yeah and i mean to zoom out even further Putin is by no means, and Russia is by no means, the only group to lay hold of this idea that they're genuinely Rome's successor and they're going to rule all Europe under this single central unification of all that's right and they're going to destroy everything that's variant and wrong. And the most famous one is the ruler of the Third Reich, wow. i.e. the Come Third on. Kingdom, the Third Rome, which is Mr. Hitler, yep. who... <laughs> Laid waste. Terrible. I mean, if we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people and billions of of dollars as you know, as a percentage of the population, a percentage of the economy, World War Two is a six year long destruction of of tens of millions of people, and yeah. you know, probably the majority of the entire of Europe's economy for that period of time. You know, the, 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 when did we finish paying the bill? It wasn't that long ago, was it? Uh, it depends how you count it. But yeah, there's there's still some countries that are still paying annual payments as either reparations or as um, repayment of, of war debt from World War II now. God. I don't think Britain any longer is. No, but I think we, there was a point, wasn't there? But Yeah. But so this this mythology, this this belief that, you know, the first Rome fell, the second Rome fell, now the third one shall never fall... Berlin has been offered as a centre, Paris was offered as a centre, Moscow, Kiev, um, <laughs> London, Jerusalem. You know, all of these, you, you can borrow ideas and, and sort of pull enough strings if you're powerful enough and kind of make it all dance to this tune and give yourself a very strong idea of being the only one who can rectify historic wrongs, the only one who can sort of cement peace and you know, and freedom and, and proper things for all eternity. And the the third Rome thing, I think unlike some other eschatologies, counts on one person being audacious enough yeah. and powerful enough to actually fight a real war to yeah. see it all happen. And I, I'm by no means, um, I, I'm completely unequivocal. I think that it's 
doomed to fail for sure. It's yeah. just so much nonsense. But it, like you say, it's driving real geopolitics Powerful. today. It's yeah. driving stock market today. It's pushing and, and pulling forces that affect ordinary people's lives in most of the world's countries. This belief that Mr. Putin has that he's going to be, you know, writing this historic wrong and re-establishing the Third Rome. I saw an article just um, uh, this week, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, in the Telegraph, I don't buy the Telegraph, it's online, um, and they were talking about Mr. Putin's threats to mm. launch a nuclear ICBM against um, Britain and cause a tidal wave that swamps that dreary, damp country. Or I can't remember what his exact words were, but it was words to that effect. Yeah. And then I just read on a little bit, and he's evidently got this master weapon called Satan 2. Yeah, there was a Satan 1. And, it, it, it. and I just thought, <laughs> this guy, he's claiming to be some spiritual giant who's Mm. rescuing the world from moral depravity and spiritual decline and atrophy and he's restoring all that's good yes and yet his secret weapon is 20 meter long missile called satan Satan. too and i i said (laughs) are we the baddies Why would you name a secret weapon after an enemy who is an imposter anyway and has been defeated by a lamb? Well, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit like naming your beautiful brand new yacht the Mm. Titanic, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Um, I mean, as we speak, there has been a a local, um, a a sort of UK local um, news flash out that Russian hydrographic and oceanographic survey vessels were sort of peeking at British undersea cables and looking at where to strike. And I've had more than one person come to me and say, is this like, is this the beginning of, of, oh dear, armed conflict between us and Russia? And I said, no, you know, this is a 50, 60, 70 year old practice that Russia's always done and actually Britain does this too you know you survey the cables you look at where you would strike if you were going to hit it and it's the same as having you know military flyovers Mm -hmm. you know a Russian airplane breaks UK airspace once a month or so didn't they send a warship up the channel they do regularly yeah yeah. yeah, they do um if they move ships from the north to the Black Sea they usually go through the English channel and Britain sort of sends a warship to sit alongside it. it takes on another level of significance in this current climate, doesn't it? It can do. And I would, my, my plea, my plea is let's not let it because actually these things are regular routine kind of low level, um, problems for us. and, And they're always being monitored by our armed forces. He's not the only one with 20 meter long ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads on top. And the whole thing, you know, the, the, the basis for the peace that's existed since the 50s between the Russian and the West is is the idea that if we all have nukes, then if anyone nukes anyone, they all get nuked by everyone. Mutually assured destruction. And I would like to believe that even Mr. Putin at his worst is not ready to pull that trigger yet. Um, but oh, it's very difficult because this kind of yeah. belief does drive people to certain ends and... Yeah. You know, it drove Mr. Hitler all sorts of crazy and yeah. look what happened to him. 
it's a really good place to stop i think pete mm. and thank you so much and we're the next session we're going to be actually looking at that whole state of the kind of, on the subject of the doomsday preppers who yes. are the people who are not just a bunch of flaky crazy people sure who are digging bunkers and stuff but they're people who genuinely believe that there is such an existential threat mm -hmm. to them right now and to us, whoever, wherever. Yeah. They've got to prepare for it. They're preparing. And so, you know, Mr. Putin's missile for them probably is another very good reason why we should have a nuclear bunker we can go to. Yep. Yeah. But we're going to talk about that next time. We'll I look really forward to hope that. you'll be able to join us. And yeah. thank you for listening. Don't forget to like it and hit the subscribe button and then you can keep up to date with yeah. all our sauntering podcasts. For, feel, for sure, feel free to share it with anyone you think that might like to hear yeah. it. Yeah, and I think there's a place to leave comments as well. So have a great day. See you, everybody.